Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. Uh, I'm Rabbi Iggy out of the Chuva Center. Um, nice to have you back with us. We have a guest today um, with perhaps one of the best names <laughs> on on the internet. Uh, we have uh, Megan. Uh, you can find her at Mindfulness Megan. I mean, that's really amazing. Uh, MindfulnessMegan.com. Um, hi, welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, Iggy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> So, um, your work, tell us a little bit about your work and sort of um, where you are with it so people can know you. Yeah. Um, so, I'll first just by starting with, uh, you know, acknowledging geographically where we are on Turtle Island and specifically for me on unceded, unsurrendered territory, um, Algonquin territory. And uh, I am located in uh, what the colonial uh, world has identified as Canada uh, in Ottawa, Ontario. And uh, I do mindfulness, I guess you could say teaching to many different (laughs) individuals and groups. Uh, My most recent work has been with school boards. So specifically in the Ottawa area, I've worked recently with the Catholic school board using uh, the unified mindfulness educational framework and techniques within that to educate educators on how to bring inclusive mindfulness practices into the classroom, meaning really understanding the origins of mindfulness and having practices that are flexible and accessible to everyone. And also I work with a lot of the black indigenous and uh, people of color communities mostly are more vulnerable communities in this area, specifically to empower wellness and to support self-care and self-love as a form of activism and to really understand that rest is resilience and resistance and that it's absolutely necessary for us to reschool our identities and uh, overall perceptions of mental health and mindfulness and wellness so that it is more supportive for us. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much to talk about just that. Uh, but before, like, so you say unceded territory? Yeah, I am specifically on unceded Algonquin territory in this region that I'm in, in Ottawa, Ontario, but across Turtle Island, there are many regions that are unceded territory. And what unceded means is the First Nations people never uh, ceded or legally signed away their lands to the crown or Canada. So that stretches across any colonized land, really, that was not signed over. I see. So that that's really important um, in, in, in the way we're talking about this, um, mostly because I don't usually hear, which I, I really like, this sort of um, distinction. To, to make sure that sort of we can distinguish between land that was unceded, land that presumably was ceded, or or land that was just taken, right? Sort of you know, in that sense. Yeah, um, yeah. Captured land, we say, right. also in uh, Jamaican culture. So there's a lot of reggae songs you'll hear where it talks about captured land and stolen land. 
and the importance of just understanding the distinction between the two of them, because that's really the reschooling that we are doing in facing some of the uncomfortable aspects of our history. Right. Right. And bringing awareness to that. Right. So like that, even if there's not much to do about it now, right. Sort of like, right. I'm presumably right, they can uproot some of the cities, but at least in terms of the awareness and perhaps even later for some restitution of it, like that there's, uh, you know, that brings, that brings the, at least from a, from a mindfulness space and from a spiritual space, a much more honest and authentic approach to it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's our ability really to use our mindfulness skills. And I really love how UM uses um, those three attentional skills of, and Shenzhen obviously is using, <laughs> using the same right. model from Shenzhen, but you know, the ability to, for concentration to turn towards and then to have the sensory clarity of what are the sensory signals and, and, experiences that I'm having perceptually and then having that equanimity to whatever shows up and equanimity really speaks to that compassionate acceptance of whatever shows up. It's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even if it's uncomfortable or unpleasant. Uh, and that I think is, is those are three very powerful ways to pay attention on purpose to these, these things that can be very uncomfortable. These, these truths about our history, about our cultures, about our differences, about where we're living and, and really to turn towards reconciliation and with reconciliation, there's going to be disruption and with disruption, there will be discomfort. And that is mm -hmm. how creation begins you know we think about right. childbirth same thing you know it's there's got to be some disruption there has to be some conflict healthy conflict uh, absolutely because two things one i think that um right for most of our audience sort of we're talking a lot of people in recovery of all different kinds right that sort of that space of the the conflict the i can't do this anymore mm -hmm. right the, the the rock bottom if you will but even if it's not rock bottom but it's like i don't want this life anymore I want to change what comes from a discomfort that you can't do it. But also I think, and this is, this is really important for both recovery and for this. And I think for life, even if there's nothing I can do about it, the ability to be aware of where I am with whatever that discomfort is changes my attitude towards it. So I may not be able to solve it or, or even address it in a way that sort of would be appropriate in any way. But the awareness itself is the first, uh, don't mind the pun, the first seed in, in as we approach what we're facing and how we're interacting, right? How I walk into a space, if I know that sort of it's seeded or not, now changes, right? Internally, Absolutely. at least. Yeah, it's very interesting, the correlation and the intersectionality between uh, what I call contemplative justice and the work that you're doing with mm -hmm. uh, individuals that are uh, really in a, a state of recovery from, you know, the mental suffering that we all are at on some level experiencing between the, you know, the push and the pull of craving and avoiding craving and avoiding. Right. Um, and then that powerful last skill of mindful awareness of equanimity to that, which was what you're, talking about in that awareness and being able to accept, okay, well, this is where I'm at. This is a part of me. This mm -hmm. is, and then also that detachment of like, you aren't the substance abuse. You aren't right. the addiction. You aren't the mental illness or the disease and being able to transcend from that space, but it takes time. And it's, right. you know, it's hard when we have this lizard brain that wants to fix everything. Right. <laughs> See, so it as a problem, right? 
yeah. or go to sleep, right? Yeah. Like avoid it, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's right. fixing or avoiding, and and that's challenging, you know. Uh, but also a beautiful thing. It was a part of the overall human being experience, right? Well, because I think it, it is in that tension that we find the most meaning, right? It is in that tension that we are able to transcend ourselves, right? So Absolutely. Right. That that for me is the essence of mindfulness, right? To 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 acknowledge that and to say, okay, now I have a choice. Mm-hmm. Right. If I if I succumb to my base wills, I don't have a choice. But if I can respond instead of just react, right, I get to really um practice the higher level of my consciousness. Exactly. And see yourself beyond those identities and those stories that you're hearing in that inner sensory, you know, hear of what you think you are fully, which is usually we're very much in our head, but the body is also communicating with us. You know, energy is all around us and there's a lot of different communication and signals that are happening within ourselves and externally that are impacting us. So it's, it's interesting that you say that it actually brings up, um, I don't know what you were going to say next, but I'm going to throw this out there and we'll just pivot if we have to. Um, It brings up a lot of the work that I do around sovereignty and agency. Mm-hmm. So when we think about sovereignty, really meaning self-regulating, right? Mm-hmm. Self-governing, let's say, but we go into mindfulness more of self-regulating mm-hmm. and agency as our ability to make choices, like our ability to own our agency, our choices in our lives and uh, our destiny. When you're talking about, you know, being able to respond versus react, like we really need to understand how colonization has impacted that agency and sovereignty within all of us, not just BIPOC communities, uh, but even in white communities, right? And Mm -hmm. how that has impacted us all over the world. Uh, And it's not just in Turtle Island. We're looking at um, Israel. We're looking at, you know, we're looking at all over the world right now and and seeing this being a, a constant that's showing up is, how do we claim our agency and our sovereignty and then still mm-hmm. be of service to society from a compassionate, kind lens? Right. I, I you know, I, I think that's, that's precisely that the thing that we have to deal with, right? In, in Jewish life, there is an old saying that sort of um, that you are not responsible to fix the world, but you are not relieved from your responsibility to continue to try. <laughs> absolutely right? like that tension between like you can't fix it all but you can't just say i can't fix it all so i'm not going to do anything mm. right that 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 intentionality is very very important um you know it, you you we started sort of talking about sort of the seated but also so talk about sort of um uh right people of color and and since this is a podcast i guess i should just say that you are a person of color because people can't see you yeah right (laughs) um um, but 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 leaning into that in the sense of sort of that that is um you know forgive the particularism but that is not the usual space right i speak with a lot of sort of right mindfulness people and but like but there's there's not enough um, if 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 a quantifying judgment is enough for this, but there's not enough people of color sort of like really occupying a space of mindfulness, occupying a space of um, spiritual leadership from this particular angle, right? And this ability. Um, and we're talking about sovereign. You talk about sovereignty and agency, and and of course that makes me think about 
you know, the, the racial divide and, and right. And social justice divide and, and right. And the economic, uh, economic divide, right. That, 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 that is, um, important to address. And I guess my question is we're talking about now sort of this sort of, uh, uh, mindfulness as we approach it, um, how does your perspective or does your perspective change being a person of color in that space, which, which I'll say, you know, everybody forgive me, like it's very white, you know, it's very white. Um, um, and, and I can imagine this both challenges, but also great insight in sort of the way the sort of that you're looking at things. Yeah. Um, just in all that you were you were saying. So one thing I'll just correct is I identify as black. Uh, okay. I don't identify as a person of color. Um, I apologize. No, that's okay. I'm just yeah. I just uh, I like to just identify and be be kind of clear on that. Um, I know in different regions and different parts uh, of the world it it depends on you know there's African American in the states. Right. Uh, I prefer Afro Caribbean black. My dad is of Jamaican heritage. I'm actually technically multiracial. Uh, my mother is white Canadian from Nova Scotia, uh, but I do identify as Afro Caribbean black. Um, wow. And uh, so we'll start with that. And then the second thing, as so you're asking me a question. Yes. <laughs> but I I have a couple of kind of just contemplative opportunities in some of what you were what you were saying there um so this kind of answers the question around white centering and mindfulness Mm -hmm. and that there isn't enough of this angle um so Rhonda v mcgee is someone that is a uh, black woman or african-american woman who's a law professor in the states who has written a book called the inner work of racial justice I happen to have attended a workshop with her, which is what actually led me into the unified mindfulness community because they were hosting her. Uh, and she has a really good lens on this, uh, particularly in the States. Um, but I do, uh, I do agree that in Canada specifically, it is even more white centered and there is much less work around contemplative justice using mindfulness as a, a tool for that, uh, or even having non-racialized individuals leading that. So this leads into kind of the next part of what I think is a more relevant question, not to, not to disrespect. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. Um, like, this is not the right question. Here's the right question. No, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. I think this is just an opportunity for, for those listening to, to ask themselves, whose responsibility is it to see more BIPOC individuals in mindfulness Mm. and whose responsibility is it when you see the opportunity for contemplative justice to be initiated and amplified? Is it the BIPOC community's responsibility to be taking on this role or is it the responsibility of humanity to be using mindfulness for these very important uh, approaches to social justice. So whose responsibility is it in, in, your, in your opinion? In my opinion, I think it's everyone's. Right. And I think it's not so linear and black and white, like our ego and our right. mind would like it to be. 
So nothing is right. Nothing I mean, we're, I'm a big thing. There's nothing by nothing is binary. Everything's a both end. Yeah, and dualism is really a part of colonialism. Right. So there are some right. there are some really great individuals who are ultimately decolonizing wellness and mindfulness, including right. yoga, and they talk about this concept. Um, so if you're interested more in that, I can maybe send some resources over to Iggy to share the yeah. podcast. Yeah, um, I don't have their names off the top of my head, but. All right. uh, there are some really good individuals doing that work, but ultimately it's many paradoxes and many ands, not ors, not buts. And so that looks like, how do we amplify the BIPOC individuals in mindfulness? Because there are actually a significant uh, amount. There could be a lot more. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not equal. That's for sure. (laughs) Um, From a quantitative perspective, but how can we amplify the individuals that are in this space and continue to amplify individuals that are interested in it and continue to have mindfulness be in a decentered way that can be accessible to everyone? So another really important question is how do we decenter the whiteness in mindfulness? And the concept of decentering whiteness, Rhonda V. McGee has a really good definition of it. So I would recommend picking up her book and having a read. There's some great exercises in it. And then another really good uh, book by uh, Resma Menachem, if I could say his name right, Menachem. He wrote um, My Grandmother's Hands, and that also has some really good resources in it as well. So in this question, the decentering of of whiteness and mindfulness, it's around amplifying the individuals that are in it and working in a way that recognizes how whiteness has been defined as normal in our society and what that that looks like, not as individual people that happen to identify as white as a skin color, but as our standards in practicing wellness and identifying even social emotional learning, like identifying how somebody's expressing an emotion or somebody's practicing or teaching or approaching mindfulness or defining mindfulness. And we know the history of mindfulness in North America really became quite popular when John Kabat-Zinn as a white man came and said, here's this wonderful thing I've traveled and I'm bringing this back all great and integrated it into psych and science. But we need to think about how, his credentials, credentializing it, the putting it in the higher education institution and the colonization impacts that trickle into higher institution as well and credentializing and validating now that it is something worth practicing and it's something that now has been stamped ultimately the history of scientific colonialism is like stamped by a a white scholar. And so this is the lens and this is how, you know, so it's understanding all of those, those concepts and, learning how to use mindfulness to turn towards those things, to continue to educate uh, on the origins of it and just aware of how certain things like credentializing can be barriers to many practitioners, to many communities, the, the use of certain language, the use of certain music, certain types of practices, or even 
<laughs> the capitalism within it, as we've seen it, the gentrification of wellness of right. you need to be wearing a very special pair of expensive pants. You need to go to a studio. Right, right. Right. You need to be able to speak a certain language to be able to access it. Not everybody is fluent in English, right? Or that you need to be on a cushion, that you need to be able-bodied, right? And so understanding all these different intersecting identities and barriers that can impact those identities for, for everyone, right. making it more inclusive and, and empowering that belonging. So differences, I think, just need to be encouraged more. And if you are white in this space, to be mindful of, am I amplifying all of my community members Am I, we all have positive bias. So am I, you know, looking at relatability? Uh, Am I staying in a community that's relatable? Am I getting out of my comfort zone to amplify others and to be present with the way that they might teach or the way that they may be accessing these, these practices? Um, So the many, many, many things, we're not going to get through all of it in this podcast, but (laughs) you know, that would be really, I think just a, a really good opportunity for contemplative questioning and practice (laughs) within ourselves. Right. Right, right. Following on that is the accessibility and the visibility, right? So, because you talked to, you talked about access and you talked about right, so like sovereignty, but but you also talked about um, the right inter- intellectualization of it, right? So like mm-hmm. the, the putting it in a space that I think for right for for. BIPOC is so important because not just sort of the, the, if you will, the colonization of it, right, in terms of sort of how white-centric it has become, but also that because of how it looks like, it's become something for the other, the them, yeah. right? So for people, right, whether they are right people of color or black people, right, so like that mindfulness since it's taught by white people, looks like white people with the yoga pants and the cushion and all that, right? It's in the universities. It studies high, right? That's like, oh, that's a, that's a them thing. <laughs> that's yeah. not, that's not an us thing. And, and also then creating this sort of really much more, I think, insidious divide between the ability to, um, to reflect Right. As as we think about time and as we think about resources, right, as the sort of privileged thing. Yeah. Rather than something we can teach children everywhere all the time. Um, and that for me makes it makes it worse. Right. So so when I do see people right who who teach like you, who right, who 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 bring the awareness as you do, who are who you are for me, right. The, the, the ability for people to then imagine themselves in that world, in that room, in that role is, is even more important because of, of how it affects the, the society, the children, the, the young adults who, who see somebody who is able to use its practice um, no matter where they are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I hear you talking about that, I hear you alluding to representation, right? The importance of representation in this space. So yes, that is a huge, huge aspect of it. Uh, And again, it's just that positive bias that we have. Um, If we can relate, it's more accessible for us. For one, 
but there's many other reasons for it. And then the other thing that I heard you alluding to as well is, um, you know, the gentrification of wellness. For example, the we meditate to feel better. Uh, we do yoga to exercise um, and all the many things like that, that just basically say the practice is really just to feel good. <laughs> and so it's like packaged up in this bow and it's like, oh, no, right. there's no way, Megan, that you can intersect righteous anger that a lot of right. black communities feel right. and into a wellness practice. How, how is that possible? You know, or you look at social emotional learning in the school system it, up here anyways, and it's kind of used in a way t- to pathologize a lot of our BIPOC students. So for example, if a young white child is angry, oh, they're just having a tough date. If a young black boy or black mm-hmm. girl is angry, it's almost, it's, it's almost life-threatening. It, it can be life-threatening actually. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And 100%. Like Especially anger. in today's climate here. Yeah. Anger is a very dangerous emotion for us as black people right. to express in, in environments that are incredibly white centered. And, and spiritually too, that is oh. sort of like, right. So like this, this, this horrific notion of the angry black woman, right. As yes. we perpetuate that. Exactly. Right? So like, so, so even if it's not life threatening in that particular moment, it's life threatening in the ter- in the sense of the scope of life of black people all around. Exactly. Because then the, what we are perpetuating is this division right. and this, idea that self-protection, which is obviously, you know, the, the beauty of the ego, I don't want to demonize or villainize the <laughs> ego, but it's the beauty of the ego is we want to survive. Right. We want to survive right. and we want to protect ourselves. And, you know, the lizard brain is a big part of that as well. It's, right, right. it's that auto response where our nervous system kicks in and we're trying to protect ourselves from, right. from danger. And so when this programming is happening through conditioning and, and seeing in the classroom, if you're a white student and you're seeing a black student who is just expressing a human emotion treated completely differently or seen as threatening, whereas you're just having a bad day, what? how is that going to be helpful for the white student? Not just the black student, we already know that's damaging to the black student or the indigenous student or the student of color, right? But for the white student, it's also not helpful. It's incredibly restrictive and it perpetuates that psychological rigidity of avoidant behavior. It creates and, a binary a binary state for them as well. Exactly. It's it's very destructive. So mm-hmm. it does no good to to any of us to continue right. to perpetuate those things. And, and and like you said, when we go back to the children, it starts at that that young age. And so it's important to recognize anger as anger in anybody, and even if it's expressed differently by everyone and mm-hmm. identified differently by everyone, that doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that it's something that we avoid and it's how do we use mindfulness to turn towards those heavier emotions that sometimes <laughs> even for me, I don't know if you experience this Iggy and probably other people listening to if you ever watch somebody cry or get angry that we can also have kind of a nervous system response to it. Our ANS in and we're like, we get uncomfortable. And so because we get uncomfortable, we project that discomfort onto that person and then we can't hold space for them. That's right. And this is this is this ability to hold space is our ability to practice the mindfulness within ourselves to to say okay what's going on in my internal weather system right now so that from sense again back to sensory clarity let me turn towards myself what's going on within me okay I'm uncomfortable okay it's okay that equanimity piece 
and then still be present with the individual that's expressing the emotions that they're having. Right. No, I, I, that's very, I think that's very important because I think that that comes back again also in recovery and, and all the other sort of work that we do, the sort of people are so unexperienced, unskilled, unattuned to their own emotion, that sort of that any emotion that sort of ranges out of the kind of like medium range, crying, grief, pain, suffering, awkwardness, we can't deal. So we avoid and we self-medicate or we self-soothe. Right. And, and, and even to, to what are perceived as sort of like, you know, you know, like uh, uh, support practices, which, which I go uh, against all the time, which is why when somebody is grieving, for example, when somebody's having a hard time and sort of like, right, trying to help them try to fix it for them. Or you got to be strong, got to be strong for your child, got to be strong for your thing. You got like, right. It's, you know, the silver lining. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Right. The, the correct response is like, this is horrible. I'm with you. I'm just going to sit with you. Right. You don't have to be strong. You don't write sort of that, that sort of really conveying a message that you are strong enough all by yourself to deal with whatever you're dealing with. And I'm just going to be here supporting you for whatever I can. But I don't need to give you advice. I don't need to fix this for you. I don't need to tell you something that you don't know. I, I believe that you have all the faith and the skills to traverse this. Yeah. When I hear you, human. when I hear you say that, I hear you saying, I don't need to make you feel better. Right. It's not my responsibility mm -hmm. to make you feel better because what you're doing is you're taking away the agency and the sovereignty. That's right. Of that individual. That's right. And, and you, and you, right. And creating that code that unhealthy codependency right that can really perpetuate things like right. narcissism and, and right. so on other personality right. disorders in our, in our society. So that silver right. lining, I always see it as a toxic positivity. It's not, right. I don't need to feel better right now. I'll be, I will right. be fine. Empower my self-trust, amplify my self-trust right. that I can sit through this. I can feel this and that I will right. be able to move through it and see the uh, the flow of it, right? The right. contracting and expanding of it, the impermanence of our of our lived experiences of that moment to moment presence that's coming right. and going, right. and the illusion that I can fix it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, like, and the illusion that I can somehow fix somebody else's issues, right? So, like, no, right? You can't, um, and and. And, and that self-centeredness, right? So I, do not, I not only just am taking agency away from the other person, I'm also sort of like putting myself at the center of the equation, thinking like, oh, I can fix this for you. I, I will tell you something that you can't think of it yourself and then everything will be better. <laughs> like, exactly. So like look, like, look outward, keep looking out, right. looking out versus turning towards yourself and yeah. trusting what that is showing you. Right. I think self-trust right. is just such a powerful thing to to amplify and empower within ourselves within our children say okay well what are you feeling okay right, we'll trust right. that right how many i know even just intergenerationally like how many of us listening to this have been told that what we're feeling is not valid either through gaslighting oh, right oh, <laughs> and right. and individuals you know that like you were describing um the self-soothing so mm -hmm. sometimes it looks like substance abuse sometimes it looks like many emotional addiction like there's so many right. things loops that we get caught into in this suffering and and the word fix is always a hard one for me so that's why you see me kind of like cringe right. when you say fix a bit only because i really like uh 
ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And mm-hmm. so the mindfulness approach to that or the infusion of that into that therapy approach really just talks about the problem solver part of our brain that will jump in when we're just supposed to be in an experience. And that goes back to what you're saying is that scenario, that kind of role play that you were just having of, okay, I'm here with you. I'm just going to be with you in the sadness. I'm going to allow the sadness to be here versus repress or or the anger or the grief. And we're going to move through this, I'll just be here with you, but trusting that you can fully move through this and be with this emotion and this discomfort that's coming, whatever's showing up really just speaks to not trying to quote unquote fix it. Right. And even when we're looking at substance abuse and recovery and any other addiction recovery, really it's the compassionate acceptance of it being present and that the suffering is there and that we don't need to fix it, that maybe if we bring a a gentle, compassionate lens to it and offer up the tools, because this is one thing like with my clients too, thoughts like intrusive thoughts are never going to go away. Mm -hmm. Discomfort is never going to go away. So whether it's about food addiction, where body image and, relationship with food is very complicated, right? Uh, on one side of the eating disorder or the other, it's accepting that those thoughts and those intrusive feelings are not going to stop showing up. Mm-hmm. How can you continue to allow yourself the space and the compassion to be with it when it comes up and not react to it? Right. And like you said, back to the beginning, responsive versus reactive versus fixing it as if it's a problem that needs to be solved. And it's it's never going to like once you solve it, it's never going to come back. Like sorry to tell you, it's going to keep coming back. It's just reframing it. And we don't ever unschool like we can't unschool ourselves. We don't ever unlearn anything. So it's more reschooling what we Mm -hmm. what we've learned and what we know to reframe how we identify with certain things including our thoughts and our other sensory signals that are showing up. So I just think, you know, everything you said there, we live in a society that, I mean, capitalism thrives off self-soothing, right? You know, Oh, well, you don't like your body. Go get a little nip and a tuck over here. You know, Oh, you don't like your skin tone. Go get a tan or go bleach. Oh, you don't like, you know, this. Okay. Go, go read this self-help book and, you know, package it up into these 10 steps and good. There you go. Oh, you don't, you know, this, that, this, that. It's like, fix it, fix it. We can fix it for you. This makeup will fix it. This will fix it. That will fix it. And so we go out and we spend the money on the things and it doesn't quote unquote fix it. No, you know, like inherent, like deep down in our self-worth and our belonging, it doesn't, it doesn't fix those human aspects that we cannot avoid and run away from. Like we need connection. We need courage to be vulnerable. We need, we need each other. (laughs) We need each other. Right. right. No, there's, there's no doubt. And I would say even one more that not only does it not fix it. I think that when we do those things, we cause permanent harm because the message we send to ourselves, to our bodies, to our actions, to our neurological state is you're not enough. You're not pretty enough, tall enough, white enough, black enough. You know, you're not, you're not, whatever it is, the way you are is not good. Exactly. And, and, and and in order to make it quote unquote good, 
hear something external. When, when in fact, the only work you can do that would actually help you, again, won't fix it, is the internal work. And, and when continue with doing this, we create more and more harm because we send that message. And, 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 and furthermore, and I would say even more, right, that sort of that when we, when we are not allowing our emotions to continuously show up, right? And this is, again, this is true for all recovery and, and all mindfulness and all spiritual teachings. When we're, when we think that we somehow can change the mechanism by, that makes us human, right? We, we are denying the very nature of our existence, right? Sort of, right? So, so, but the Western world, you're, you're right. We, we, I constantly call it that we've pathologized the human condition. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right? You're too happy. There's a pill for that. You're too sad. There's a pill for that. Right. So like we pathologized the, the human condition out of its sort of like, um, the the parts that make us who we are, right? And that includes the sadness and the anger and the frustration and the awkwardness and, and the, the learning and, and the shame and the grief. That's right, and the grief yeah. and all that. And and when we when we kind of smooth it away, um, we are where we are with society. And and I think it's related to recovery, but I think it's also related, as you said, to 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 justice. And to right, and to sort of race relations, and to sort of uh, um, religion, uh, you know, relations, you know, different religions, relations, like all of it. It's all connected because we we fundamentally do not accept our humanity. It's so interesting you say that. Um, Sonia Renee Taylor has a book called "The Body Is Not an Apology," and. She talks about the self-loathing of the white body, the self-hatred of the white body, and how that impacts the perception of the black body and the hate towards the black body. And so it's just the rejection of our humanness (laughs) and how we are dumping that onto, well, projecting, imposing, right? Dumping that onto other people in our human race, our human humanness and, and how dangerous that can be. It, it continues to just perpetuate that dehumanizing of different bodies. And we see it all the time. We see it right now in the R Kelly trial, right. And the right. humanization of young black girls, right. you know, the sexualized sexualizing and the hyper visualization of black bodies. And, right. And it's, it's just very interesting um, because you really alluded to, again, scarcity. Like, right. I'm not enough. I don't have enough. Right. And we see this from a materialistic perspective, but we see this, like you're saying, with our bodies and our credentials, our education levels, our titles, our followers on social. We see this mm-hmm. all around. And that really breeds greed. That scarcity mm-hmm. breeds greed. And that is... Greed, I, I think, is a is a very human thing to have, and scarcity is a very human thing to have. So we mm-hmm. need to to real to, in my my righteous opinion when I say we need right. my righteous opinion uh, is just to to be honest about that and accept that and also recognize the origins of colonialism in where in greed, right, and scarcity right. Right. and right. society that we that we live in now and and how that is upholding a lot of those beliefs and conditioning and ideals within within all of us and within our, our 
structures our society overall. Right. I mean, that that's, I think that's part of the attempts to deal with it, right? Or to, to address it, right? So if we can actually address greed, if we can address our own, right, our own shame, our own guilt, all these things, we can make headway in, in improving ourselves, right? Again, we would not be able to sort of like solve the whole thing, but we can improve ourselves. So in that sense, when we think about mindfulness, when you think about your work um, and, and what kind of change you think we can achieve through mindfulness, dealing with all these, you know, really complex issues. Yeah. Um, That's a great question. Um, Again, just in my righteous opinion, and I'm one person (laughs) in this, uh, but in the research I've done with a lot of different individuals, so many of the educators that I work with are white mm-hmm. and the healing work I do in the communities are predominantly black, but I do mm-hmm. have uh, mixed groups that show up from a, a racial perspective. Um, what I've heard on one side of it from white communities is analysis paralysis. So George Floyd was murdered that we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's nowhere to go but to turn towards it. So again, we're practicing that concentration. And there's really nowhere to go or or much to do but turn towards ourselves in general. So we think about the layers there and the opportunity collectively as the human race to practice mindfulness without even being aware that they were doing it. And that analysis paralysis piece and turning towards it looked like I want to do something for our society because I've had enough. And and I'm not talking about the black community because we had enough a long time ago, (laughs) but uh, you know, particularly for the white communities uh, and just to be vulnerable, my mom was feeling all the feels and was like, I could have done more. (laughs) And being able to bring mindfulness in as your responsibility is you. And so what that looks like is when you're experiencing discomfort and you want to have an outward behavior, which looks like white fragility, some type of reactivity that has been normalized in our society, which again is that white centering. This is a normal behavior is I'm going to have a tantrum and have no consequences, have that privilege of having no consequences. Uh, Is to bring mindfulness into those opportunities into ourselves every day to analyze and to choose to self-regulate really I think is the biggest opportunity here for all of our communities. So for the white communities, it looks like that is that ability to pause, to invite that mindful awareness, those attentional skills to turn towards ourselves and to go through what the sensory signals are without reacting and choosing to respond. Or if you do react is to recycle it. We call it in unified mindfulness, which means to reflect on it after and say, okay, what was going on here? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. This is how I've normally quote unquote handled it. Uh, And I recognize now that that is problematic and let me continue to do whatever that looks like therapy, meditation. Like I always say, do a holistic approach. I don't think there's a one way. So, you know, therapy, right. Reiki, you know, Akashic records readings, like whatever it right. is that you do, <laughs> prayer, you know, 
Right. Prayer, yeah. meditation, all, yeah. all the different all spiritual it. practices. Very, yeah. very holistic. And if we're looking at other tools within the uh, substance abuse or mental illness community, it could also look like AA, it could look like, you know, and having all of these things to say, I'm not doing anything to fix anything. I just have all these wonderful tools in my toolbox and I'm proactively just taking care of myself. So I think that that is, you know, one thing that mindfulness really brings is that ability to not just choose one way to go about things and recognize our individual responsibilities to, to self-regulate and to do self-regulation as a form of service to our, to our world, to our human race, and also to the earth, you know, the land defenders, the indigenous people that uh, are defending our land. They're not activists, they're land defenders. They are defending our land and the the earth that we live on. We talk about climate change. So it's that individual responsibility to self-regulate and to be contemplative so that we can be of service to mother nature and to other individuals. And I think for the black communities or BIPOC communities, cause it's different, but I'm again, speaking from my lens and I can't right. for all black people. So, cause that would just be tokenism, but from what I what I've heard from the BIPOC community is the importance of amplifying and empowering our wellness and putting ourselves first and reschooling our identities. So, for example, the martyr identity that's been imposed on us around we need to take care of community, especially as Black women, like we need to take care of community and everything else, and we need to put ourselves second, is a very destructive internal narrative and belief system to continue to engage in. So how do we reschool those beliefs and empower practices that also then show I have a daughter. So shows my daughter, I have agency, I'm sovereign and here's my self care and wellness practices and self love practices. It looks like boundaries. It looks like therapy. It looks like meditation. It looks like you don't need to be around me every two seconds because I empower your independence and you also don't need to be out marching and doing all of these things because just because we're black, we're not born to be activists. You can also travel and live your best life, sis. Like, you know, and it's, it's empowering those things as well uh, within our communities and that self-regulating and healing and turning towards our wellness through these tools that we have been conditioned to believe are, how would I say it? definitely uh, ways to define that we're weak, that they're white people things, you know, like right. therapy is a white person thing. If you have mental illness or a mental health challenge, right. well, then you're not strong enough and right. recognizing all the stigmas that are actually incredibly challenging to be able to thrive versus just survive in, in this society as, as black communities and indigenous and people of color as well. So long right. and short, that's kind of my, is just, taking care of ourselves. No, I, I think that's incredibly important because I think, and again, this is one of those other spaces where it like, ties into recovery and sort of that, that we, we identify so much with the crisis many times, right? So that we don't allow, right? So, right. So if you are right. And, and again, I'm not trying to make any stigmas or boxes, but like, right. But if you're a black person in America, you should be concerned about race and that should be your day to day thing about right you know your community and relation and access and all that right and and right and, and sort of that um there is other things that are going on 
in your life, right? If you are a person who's dealing with recovery, yes, right? So like not drinking or substance or your recovery from a process addiction is important, but it's not your entire life. And if you make it your entire life, you are doing just as much harm, if you will, as something else, right? The sort of that there is, there has to be a, a, as you said, a more whole, a more holistic approach to both our anger and our righteous indignation and our social activism, but also to our hedonism and our own pleasure and our own space and our own relaxing. And as you said, beginning our own rest and be like, I don't right, And not everything needs to be right. A, a political statement, but also sometimes you just want to live. And when we don't allow for that to happen, either in recovery or in anything else, we, again, we reduce ourselves to one of two labels. And then of course we'll have a reaction. Of course we'll, we'll, we'll build resentments around it. And of Absolutely. course we'll then have mechanisms that will, that will destroy us. Yeah. A big thing I always, I always like to bring up is reductionism. And I know I will get some, I mean, if I'm not getting some level of criticism, I'm not being disruptive enough. So it is what it is. Exactly. Don't come at her, people. Right. So, (laughs) so here's here's my two cents on reductionism and what you're what you're also what I feel like is also from what you're saying. When we reduce ourselves to just an identity, so black, quote unquote addict, or we reduce anybody else to these one aspects of our right community. right for me it's like i'm gay right right so it's like you're gay and that's it you're just right this is it you're black and this is it we are so much more as human beings than mm-hmm. those one identities that right. we are identifying with i'm not saying that those identities are not important identities i'm not saying that those i'm not giving that bs that you know i don't see color like that's not what i'm talking about i'm ex- i'm just saying we also need to recognize that we can get caught up in that reductionism mm-hmm. and it reduces our human beingness and ourselves from just being in what the beauty of being a human being is, even if it's in that craving and aversion cycle that we're in, where we're seeking pleasure and avoiding discomfort and unpleasant things. Because the beauty behind it is our nervous system, our lizard brain, our vagus nerve, everything neurologically. Our soul. Right. Our soul wants it. Everything is working on this right. autopilot, incredible, like, I don't know how to say it. Like, it's just like on this autopilot run. It's no, just like constantly navigating. It's constantly modifying. It. It's constantly moving. That's it's it. constantly changing. Right. If B- Buddhism, for example, as, as, as well as sort of Jewish spiritualism, right. Teaches us that everything changes all the time. And therefore we constantly adapt these things, but, but they are things that have to, right. They have to happen. Even though you're driving the car, you're not right. Actively driving the car every second of, of what you're doing. There's so many other sensory things that are happening within your being at that moment. And when we can open ourselves up to, okay, who's really driving the car? Like who is really doing any of this? Who's doing the thinking? Oh, it's just happening. It's an expression of my, one of my organs, like, or many of my organs in, or my nervous, like it's, this is just an expression of my human beingness. And, that is that brings a lot of humility. It's like, oh, I thought I, the I, the me, the my, that illusion of self was, you know, running this show. Nope. <laughs> uh, 
I a lot of you is running the show, but not all of not them. all of you, right? Right. Part especially when we talk about trauma and yes. other things. Especially we talk, right, we talk all these things that we're talking about, both race and right. There are things that you think you're running the show, but you are a product of a childhood. You are a product of a society. There are choices that you think you're making, but really you you've made them already, and they've been made for you already. You know, um, and that's really that's 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 hard. You know, I, I often talk about myself as being a hyphenated identity, and that my identity lives in that space on the hyphen, right? Because right, I'm I'm an immigrant. I'm a male. I'm a father. I'm gay. I'm a rat, right. So like, but but I'm neither one of these things. I'm all these things. So so my identity really lives in that space between those boxes that I tick, so that you can recognize my space in this world i um, love that it's again goes back to the removing the dualism right and reschooling right. that there's lots of ands and many paradoxes we can be grateful and experience grief we can be joyful and experience shame we can be you know and and many things can be coexisting at the same time and i know right when we get caught up in the unknown and uncertainty or when we're afraid, Brene Brown says this quote and will never leave me. When we're afraid, uh, it was from some, some, a teller that she was at a bank. Anyways, if you read rising strong, you'll see she talks about it, but the teller says to her, nobody's themselves when they're afraid. And she's this individual, this white lady to this black teller who said something likely racially charged. He just turned to Brene and was like, yeah, nobody's themselves when they're afraid and she's doing the best she can. And Brene was like, doing the best they can. Like, I don't even understand how that's possible. Like, that was terrible behavior. But when we we really bring in the compassion and inquiry and introspection that mindfulness offers, it's recognizing that you're doing the best you can, even if you relapse or even if you are noticing some intrusive thoughts or some shameful uh, engaging some shameful quote unquote behavior, right? That we're all doing the best we can. And that fear is a very powerful and heavy sensation, sensory experience. And so, you know, recognizing that all of us as human beings have <laughs> that uh, psychological rigidity that will right. put us in that state of needing just one thing or, 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 because we are afraid of the uncertainty and the unknown that something may be arising for us in our, in our lived experience at that moment. Right. No, I, I, I you know, tattoos and Torah uh, is built on this concept specifically of things that don't seemingly go with each other. That's so of the, the non-binary allows for us to, to say, not only is it possible, you always feel two things or three things at once that there is no, grief without some sense of relief that there is no love without some sense of fear that there's no right that sort of that that we're constantly in this that you can be proud and afraid you can be successful and and anxious right that that's really really important and that we don't talk about those dualities because you're supposed to be happy right you're supposed to be content right you just got your promotion right all, all these so why are you threatening you know fretting or why are you in a party that celebrate celebrates you right I, the most lonely i've ever felt was at parties that celebrated me right yeah. and, and 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 that right the ability to say this is not just normal this is to be expected and how are you going to deal with it is 
is that sort of like you know both and 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 our ability to sort of to really articulate and be aware of it um i i, I don't know how you feel like right because i've been playing around in my head with this notion that sort of that there are really only two feelings <laughs> one is love and the other is fear right so sort of that everything stems from from these two two large feelings and and it's not worked out yet so you know again people like you know don't come at me i'm just thinking i'm thinking aloud with you um but to constantly be in that in that binary uh rejection of of where one thing you're happy now you're sad now you're you know you're you're gay you're black you're you're male you're female right all these things and sort of like no um I may present as one thing, but there's so much more there. And and when we reduce ourselves, I think that's when self-soothing and addiction and self-harm comes in, when we don't allow for the for us to be multiple things, right? That could be I can be a, a deep spiritual leader, but I can also just love the, you know, the real housewife franchise. <laughs> you, you know, like and I do. Like, right? So like that sort of that it's not always like, you know intellectual dinner conversation that sometimes it's just like i want chocolate cake and you know and bravo yeah no i i i completely completely agree i'm i'm the same sometimes i'm meditating sometimes i'm wilding out to cardi b because right sometimes i just i just want to experience different things or i just enjoy right. something in in that moment and i remember it's interesting you say this i remember when I was getting into becoming a mindfulness coach and, and leaving the corporate world. So I was in HR and talent acquisition and so on and diversity and inclusion work. And I took the bold jump to go full, <laughs> full into mindfulness coaching. And at the time uh, I'm divorced now, but my marriage was really struggling and it just felt like this really odd reality to be in to have extreme highs of, okay, I'm really, this is my authentic self. I'm stepping into this. I'm really enjoying this. And then on the other side of it, be have all this shame towards like, why can't I just fix my marriage? Why can't I just make this work? What's wrong with me? Like, mm -hmm. you know, and all that shame that's certain. Why did I feel? Right. right. Yeah. Like, yeah. and, yeah. and, those that paradox of extreme highs and really owning my authenticity in one area. And then in the other area, not being honest with myself, not being true to myself and what aligns for me. And we often get caught in, well, this is my, again, that reduction and this is my identity. I'm a mindfulness coach. Like I should never suffer from depression, have, right. have suicidal ideation, right. suffer from substance abuse or any other form of emotional or, um, emotional addiction right. or eating disorder. Like I should just have it all figured out. Right. Well, perfect. Right. right? No should, 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 right. I should never Absolutely. say the wrong things, never do the wrong things. You know, I've never met a mindfulness coach that suffers, but you're talking about, you know what I mean? Like I should never, you know, pop off, you know, and road rage. Like I should never, <laughs> like I should always be like calm and Zen and so on. Right. But that is again, so reductionist and is right. not, it's not the truth. Right. You know, uh, it's not our truth as human beings. Right. Our truth is impermanence. Our truth right. is That's right. change. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it's not human. 
right? And when we do that, we, we do that again. We, we not just harm ourselves, but we harm others because we, we don't allow them to also be things. We don't allow them to also understand the sort of that, that yes, right? And, and, and we haven't even got, we haven't even talked about this, right? So like the, the mindfulness on the cushion versus the mindfulness that's off the cushion, which I think oh, is yeah. like, like 90% of things. But people think that mindfulness is in a room and there's music and there's like maybe like a humidifier with some lavender in it, whatever, whatever <laughs> right? right? But like all but these like conditions to, to, that's right. All these conditions to access it versus just dropping into it and having it as a right. lifestyle choice. That's right. That's right. That can happen at your office or on the car or somewhere else. And, and again, I think we're back to sort of this, these visions and, and these kind of white visions of what mindfulness and meditation and things look like rather than, you know, the access to, to the emotional awareness, the mindfulness tools that sort of should be given to everybody, right? Um, so as, as you were sort of transitioning into this sort of mindfulness role, uh, reference teacher role, like, and, and today, do you... I guess it's a very pointed question, but like, do you experience sort of like racism, like as a person, as a black person within that world that is predominantly white? Do you? Um, I mean, I experience racism in general. Yes. Uh, I, some of the, the more recent stuff specifically is not within the mindfulness pr- community, particularly. Uh, I'm really blessed to be in the unified mindfulness mm-hmm community. Um, and then in Shenzhen's world, I haven't had any negative experiences with anybody that, is what they call a shithead. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I have experienced, so for example, if I am offering a proposal or pricing for my services or the approach that I do, there is sometimes some resistance to validating the price with mm. what I'm offering because it doesn't fit into a box. So it's not this... Right how would I say it? It's, it doesn't fit into, okay, well, I remember like one time I was on the phone with somebody who was on a call with um, somebody who was a mental health practitioner within one of the school boards. And she said to me, uh, you're not a practitioner, you don't have the credentials. So we just need to make sure that the students are safe. And uh, basically just like try to try to do a little me a bit. Right. And so I just, I just said to her, I said, I've already been working with these students. They see value in what I offer. They have shown tangible improvements in their mental health and wellness overall with the tools that I offer. And this was a a white woman that was speaking and, and said to her, you know, just even in your response to me and your, your, the justification before you, it came out of your mouth, that auto justification that this was okay to say to me when you actually don't know the lived experiences as a, as a black student right? and that there is a reason that they're reaching out to me and that they want me in the school and in the school boards and that you're not trusting that and that you Mm -hmm. feel that your righteousness is above that. I said, even that is a very white centered approach. And you hide behind the concern. And that's it. I said, that's, that's a very white centered approach to even put yourself first and your need to, to do that with me right. <laughs> versus to say, let me trust these students. Right. And I, w- she was going to be on the workshop that I was doing anyways. Right. So 
if there was any, if there's going to be any issue or any, the safety of those students were going to be at risk, she would have been there to do damage control or to cut me out of it or whatever needed to be done. And in fact, the opposite happened. It's continued to be very fruitful and very positive for those students to this day. Right. And so, you know, that is, those are the kind of things that I experience is either, I don't understand how, I, I can't justify or validate that you are worthy of this much because it needs to be packaged up in this way and presented in this way, which is a very white centered way, whether it's the credentials or the way I speak or the practices that I offer. Right. right. Um, again, you're very, I, or you're very articulate, uh, you know, which, yeah. Yeah. So that it makes you know, me cringe when I hear other people like, like yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's, wow. That's really like the surprise, you know, oh, for a, for a black person, you're this or this. Right, because that's the implied thing, right? So like, right, yeah. you know. I didn't um, expect you to, you know, be so articulate or intellectual or be able to calmly respond. That's at least, right, that's at least honest, right? But but I, I was talking to some friends not too long ago and I, and I was saying that, like, whenever somebody says, oh, they are very articulate, I, if I didn't, even if, especially when I didn't meet the other person they're talking about, I already know they're talking about a person of color. Interesting. I never hear it ever. And right. And I talk to a lot of people, like I never hear it about white people. Yeah. It's like, we're not expected to be our That's right. That's right. That's right. And I think that sort of right is, is one of those signals or one of those markers sort of that, that if you're not aware or if you're not bringing awareness to it, um, it can be missed, right? Because it's a compliment, like, right? Like, what, what did I say? I said, yeah. But like, but the implied no- notion of it is, it's, it's just, it's really. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, uh, right. We're, we're, we're starting to wrap up, right? Like, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the state of this world, right? So, like, clearly, that's yeah. Work we do, right? I mean, it would be a lie to say that it's not right. concerning, and it's not just our society. It's how we're treating mother nature it's that's right you know there's many uh many things and and when you when when we look at the origins of mindfulness it's about not just our individual selves and this narcissistic over involvement and and awareness of self it's the awareness of the collective the awareness of nature and how we are a part of nature. And right. therefore, we don't treat nature in any type of disrespectful or hurtful way. No, we colonialize it. We colonialize no. nature. We, we, we white man nature. <laughs> 100%, right? Like, right. I, we were just talking beforehand, right? So, like, I, I'm in New York, right? right? Sort of uh, um, at this particular time, you know, we just... Uh, had the threat of a hurricane come, uh, Hurricane Ari, right? And and um, I was noting, right, this, sort of that this summer, at least in New York, has been the second most wet summer uh, on, on record, right? And and I'm just amazed at how still people are not at this recognition that global change global climate the climate change like right so like all these things that are happening because of what we do that the actions we take have yeah. affected the world and still do and somehow we think that this is happening to us 
right? Somehow we, we see ourselves as victim in this rather than like being responsible for the world we live in. And, 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 and even the, 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 the fragility of it, right? Of like, oh no, this is terrible. We, right? Like, right, what are we going to do? Right? Subways are going to flood. And, 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 you know, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, yeah, but what are you going to do the day after? Today is beautiful. What are you going to do today to make sure that it doesn't happen anymore? Yeah, it really, it just speaks to, again, for me, how it is far more normalized to turn away and to distract ourselves from ourselves than it is to turn towards ourselves and to do that, that deep work. Right. Um, I see, even myself, sometimes like I take social media breaks, I'll delete the apps off my phone and close down my emails and so on, turn all my notifications off because we need to recognize that even that can be a very distracting mm-hmm. habitual practice that we're engaging in. It's self-soothing, right? We, we know about the dopamine and yes. Instagram where we know that it's it's a way to avoid the world. Yes. And so all these avoidant behaviors that are, that are encouraged and perpetuated go back to what's normal. It's far, it's, it's far more normalized to, and this goes way back to your point about courage, right? It's far more normalized to turn away and distract mm-hmm. than it is to turn towards. And that right. this idea of turning away and distract through things like silver lining and toxic positivity, that is what silver lining really falls yeah. under um, yeah. in wellness and so on uh, through the conditions that we make to quote unquote access mindfulness, like aromatherapy and special cushions and all these right. and studios right. that we need to go to and not spiritual bypassing, right. Spiritual right. bypassing that is within, you know, that gentrification of wellness. It all goes back to this idea that strength is avoidance. That strength is, you know, uh, some measure of how much you can get through the adversity with these avoidant practices versus strength is actually sitting there and crying when you feel grief. Vulnerability is strength. Strength is back to your point about, you know, this love and fear. Strength is feeling the fear and doing it anyways, which to me is the definition of courage. That's 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 strength. Strength is, is, is invoking our current courage. It's in, cultivating courage in our society within ourselves to feel fear and still turn towards love and still turn towards ourselves. That takes strength. It takes far more strength to be like, Iggy, I see you crying. I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to sit with you in this. I'm going to see myself in you and practice that radical empathy right now versus Iggy, bro, everything's fine. There's a, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Don't cry. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Don't cry. That's right. Don't cry. Why are you crying? Oh, you shouldn't be crying. You have all these things. You have all these things. You're better than that. Yeah. And you have all these things. What is there to cry about? You have a job, you have a pocket, you're doing all these wonderful things. Like you have a boyfriend, like what, what do you, what, what's what, you know, and how many times we do that to our children all the time. How many times you do that in the classroom That's right. and how that's normalized versus can we reschool what strength looks like? It's not this colonized, misogynistic, patriarchal view of aggressiveness and, you know, uh, 
Shake it off. Yeah, shake it off and or be aggressive right. or just take what you need and that's right. just just you know survival of the fittest. Right. That's not strength. Right. That's that, me, I, that's I, weakness. That's, exactly. that's, that's much exactly. easier to do than it is to actually turn towards and bring in that subtle power of compassion. That's right. That kind of power, right. not the aggressive power of patriarchal misogynistic approaches to right. things in our society, right? So right. And that's what mindfulness brings. And I think that that's, that's exactly right. I think because that's what mindfulness brings to the, to the table. I think our ability to be aware, to, to, to face our reactions, to be able to choose our responses. I think that's what mindfulness sort of really brings to the table for both recovery and life and business and yeah. work and school and spirituality. And, and I think that's, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And that's exactly the work that, sort of the, that you're doing and, and, and unified mindfulness sort of being a very clear sort of voice in that. And I think that's super, super important. On yeah. All the levels we discussed. Self-exploration is huge, but we can't, we cannot do it without recognizing that mindfulness is a key part of it and, and not the on the cushion. It's the on the cushion so that we can bring it off the cushion in, in daily life and have okay. that self-exploration to say, Ooh, this is, oh, I hear myself, I see myself, and I feel myself experiencing this definition of strength or whatever that is. Let me be with it. Let me bring some contemplative practice to it right now while I'm standing up in the grocery store line thinking that maybe it's more aggressive if I cut in front of this person because I want to be, you know, like small things like that. It's yeah. bringing- Because I need to be, I need to, right? Because I'm I'm late for me. Yeah, I'm yeah. more important than this person. That's right. Me, 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 I, I, I. And that is, that self-exploration doesn't happen without compassion and courage right. to turn towards ourselves in those moments, yes. right? And so, yeah, I just love how you, how you wrap that up. That was really, really nice. Thank you. No, I, I think that's, you know, I, I think what both you and I are doing, what I sort of call for myself, um, vernacular theology or practical spirituality, right? So that we, we really want to bring it out of, away from the cushion. Absolutely. The cushion is its place, but, you know, we live most of our life off the cushion. Yeah. The cushion really, I think it just, for me anyways, it empowers and amplifies my practice in real life. That's it. Right. So if, if anybody's like, okay, well, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do is I would recommend having a, a practice that is more formal where you are on a where you are, it doesn't have to be on a cushion, but it's just, you are mm-hmm. paying attention uh, intentionally to yourself with either some form of guided meditation or some meditation technique you're trained under for a minimal period of like 10 minutes a day. It could be a walking meditation, a dancing meditation, or it could be seated, or it could be a shower meditation, whatever that looks like for you, right? It's to, to still engage in that so you can get an I you can practice those attentional Right. And then when you get off the cushion, because you're already practicing sensitizing yourself to those attentional skills, those sensory signals, that equanimity, and so on, then you're gonna get out in the world and those real life experiences and be able to turn towards yourself again, concentration, sensory clarity of what's happening, mm-hmm. and then equanimity. But you I think you do need to have it needs to be coupled together. Is that formal and then that informal of being able to bring it into to real life. I find that really, really helps me. Uh and, and to be creative with it. Some weeks I can't do the formal as much because I'm I have some trauma that's showing up. And when I sit right. in a meditation or try to do breathing exercises, my nervous system just goes into panic attacks and so on. So those days 
I get creative. I take walks. I listen to the birds. I use music to help me pay attention on purpose. So just be flexible with yourself and find a teacher and find techniques and educational framework that works for you. That's fantastic. Last thoughts, Megan? Uh, Take care of yourselves and, you know, wellness and mindfulness and your overall well-being are not a privilege. It's a birthright. That's right. That's right. Just for being human. Yep. Or or we say, right, just because you were born, right? We, We believe in our, in our tradition, right? That God has made us in his image and therefore it is all divine privilege for all of us and all of us exactly the same. So, yep. Uh, for people who want to find you, right? Mindfulnessmegan.com. That's the, that's a good way to find you. That's my, that's my angle. You can find me on Instagram, mindfulnessmegan, uh, Twitter, it's mindfulnessmeg. And I think Facebook, it's mindfulnessmeg. But if you just Google mindfulnessmegan with a, with an H, so H for happy, M-E-G-H-A-N, you will find me. Ooh, I like that. H for happy. Yeah. You'll find me, you'll find me in some way or another. Megan, thank you so much for, for this time and this conversation. I feel we could be we could go on for hours, you and I. Absolutely. Um, and then we we will um, uh, converse some more and uh, talk some more about more stuff together. Um, but in the meantime, thank you again for coming to Tattoos and Torah. Everyone, thank you for listening. I'm Rabbi Iggy of Chuba Center. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.